By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales, both on and off the felt. Hello and welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 104, featuring Nathan Gamble. Uh, now, not only does Nathan have the perfect last name to be a professional poker player, but according to him, he was born to play cards. Nathan started playing poker before he was even a teenager, eventually graduating from uh, the family stud games in Texas to online Royal Hold'em and eventually all-night games with his dad. After high school, Nathan went to Colorado for college graduating with a degree in international business. He then decided to enlist in the army, serving as a field artillery officer while stationed in Korea. After leaving the army, he worked towards becoming a helicopter pilot. But all this time, poker kept calling him back. Nathan made a deep run in the 2016 WSOP main event, and a year later he returned to the series and won his first career bracelet, banking nearly a quarter of a million dollars for winning the $1,500 PLO 8 or better event. As it turns out, Nathan is a very good PLO player. He has 11 Omaha caches overall at the WSOP, and he is currently lending his commentary skills to the ongoing Galfond challenge between Phil Galfond and Chance Corneth. In July, Nathan won his second gold WSOP bracelet, this time taking down the $600 buy-in PLO 8 or better online event. Enough intro. Here is my conversation with Nathan Gamble. I am here with Nathan Gamble. Nathan, how are you doing? Good, Julio. How are you doing? You know, I'm I'm great. It's uh it's November, ready to turn the page on this year. <laughs> Start from scratch. How are you feeling these days? Uh, I'm I'm doing good. I as you said, we're late November right now. Everyone keeps expecting 2020 to wrap up and everything go back to normal, and uh, I wish that was was true, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think we got a long haul still in front yeah. of us. Well, we could start with the weather. It's still like summer outside, so if it could uh, get a little colder here, that'd be great. Um, let's talk about your poker story, because not very many people can say they started before they were a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, take yeah. me back to Texas and tell me what your childhood was like uh, that led you down that path. Yeah, so I mean, I definitely had a very adventurous childhood to start off, and it's interesting. I had two older brothers, so I was the youngest of uh, three, and I'm still told to this day I would greet my dad every day 
uh, when he got home from work with a pack of Uno cards in my hand. Uh, <laughs> we would just play cards and play uh, games of any sort. Uh, I was always fascinated by them. I don't know if it's just because it was time with my dad or you know something else um, that stoked my mind. But uh, I, I found poker the very first time because they were having a family reunion over at my grandparents' house. And my dad walked away from the table. I was sitting right behind him. And uh, I was like, hey, Dad, can I, can I play a hand while you're away? And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You'll probably fold it anyway. And, you know, it's like seven-card stud. We get to the river, and I played it absolutely terrible. I'm an eight-year-old kid. I don't know anything. And I try betting, and my cousin calls me, and I flip over my hand, and she's like, oh, if you'd raise me on fifth or, or bet on sixth, I would have folded because I thought you had flush. And it's just instantly, like, light bulbs went off. And I said, oh, this game's interesting like their strategy to it so i was literally hooked from that moment on as an eight-year-old kid um but yeah now you're 30 30 31 yeah so at eight years old that's even before (laughs) moneymaker uh 23 years ago so yeah 97 yeah so um was your dad big into poker or was it just any kind of card game around the house so as a kid, it was any type of card game, but he was going to Vegas. Uh, I remember he would go to Vegas and or to Shreveport with a friend, uh, and he would actually bring me back poker chips. He'd bring everyone else chocolate. Uh, and for some reason, I was fascinated by poker chips. I still have the collection to this day, and um, like I think I have casinos that no longer exist, like the Aladdin uh, mm-hmm. and several of those others. But he would play 1020 Limit back then, I think. To this day, the biggest night he ever had, he won some like four thousand dollars in ten twenty limit. That's a good night at ten twenty limit. That's a great night. I want those at uh, <laughs> That's a lot life. of big blinds. Yeah, yeah. Games must have been nice back then. Limit games. Um, so the poker boom happens. You know, this guy with a great last name for poker wins the World Series of Poker, and uh, I'm assuming it just takes over the household, or just you and your dad, or. Well, so before that, probably when I was about 12 years old, so we're, we're advancing at 2001, so we're still a little bit before Moneymaker, mm-hmm. then he was having these home games with his friends, and I remember they were just playing, you know, the bullshit mixed games of Chase the Spade and baseball and Guts, and I would sit there and watch them, and that's how I started getting more into poker. I think that's the next recollection I have of being in the game at all. I just watched them, and then Moneymaker happened. 2003, everything switched. Um, they stopped playing those games, and they were like, oh, we should play Hold'em. And was like, what's that Hold'em stuff? And you still had half of the crew whining off and on that they weren't playing mixed games anymore. But uh, I, I just was the kid watching in the background until they moved the game over to my uncle's house, and I convinced my dad, I'm, you know, 11, 12-year-old kid, I said, hey, can I play with y'all? And somehow I weaseled my way in. <laughs> I don't know how. It's so absurd when you look at it now, an 11-year-old kid playing with these 40, 50-year-old men. But uh, he gave me 20 bucks, and I promptly lost it. I told him, <laughs> I'll, I'll mow the yard, uh, give me another 20. And he did, and I lost that. Um, and then I mowed the yard the next day. I think I mowed it one more time, you know, a week or two later. I kept playing with them. I literally never remember mowing the yard again because I start winning. Um, I just realized there's a strategy. And I realized they were bad at it. And 
some, something clicked. And it's probably those years of Uno and Monopoly that, that got my brain working. So were you reading poker books at this time, or was it just a, a natural feel for the game? I know at this stage of the game, I've probably read every poker book there is. And at that stage, I was starting to get into every book there was. I think my dad had Super System on the on the bookshelf, and uh, I don't even know what was out at the time. David Skolansky, 2 Plus 2s, you know, their entire uh, collection. So I read, uh, I, mean, I, couldn't, I couldn't satiate my desire. And, uh, I, but it's also intuition. So there was a hand that developed one of the nights that, my uncle raised, and it's no limit hold'em. Yeah, so let's say we're playing twenty-five fifty cents. He makes it two dollars. I make it five dollars. I pocket queens. I probably have a twenty-five dollars in my stack, and it folds back to him. And he just, you know, gives some line about, "Oh, I'm not going to get pushed around by this kid," and shoves it all in. <laughs> and I spent like five minutes thinking. And I just felt that he was, you know. He had me beat, and I folded pocket queens face up. And this is a game where people are shoving all in with king seven suited and you know, jack five or whatever, just whatever floats their boat. And everyone is losing their minds, and he just kind of sheepishly shows pocket kings. And it's like, how'd you know, kid? And that's another one my dad still tells to this day of like, at that moment, I knew you were going to do something special in poker. Yeah. And you were like, oh, that's on page eight of Mike Caro's <laughs> Book of Tells. <laughs> Everyone knows strong means weak. Weak means strong. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, that's great. Uh, you know, there's a story I read about you uh, building your online bankroll from <laughs> almost nothing at a very young age. Yeah. It was It was around, you're, you're kind of, you're going through the timeline pretty accurately here because this was a, uh, right within that realm of uh, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid. Uh, I was playing free money online once I you know, started playing with my dad and his friends. And I think I hit a royal flush on ultimate bet in spades on stud eight or better, free money. And they gave you $5 for hitting a royal flush. Oh. And uh, I lost all that very quickly. And, <laughs> yeah. Then my dad was like, oh, there's this $11 tournament, you know, 100,000 guarantee or something ridiculous. And he gave me, he transferred it to my account. And uh, they didn't run the tournament for some reason. The statute reason. of the limitations is up, by the way. No oh, one's yeah. going to come after your dad, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my wife actually asked me that when uh, I started telling stories in, in my article recently. She's like, can you say that? I was like, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> he may feel differently, but um, yeah. And so he gave me eleven dollars to cancel the tournament, and I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid. Eleven dollars is huge money. I was like, Dad, can I transfer it back? He's like, Keep it, son. You got this. And I think I ran it down to like a dollar thirty-seven, and then I was like, I need to take this seriously. So they, I was on ultimate bet. And they had a game. I just started surfing around on what games they had that I could buy into because you have a dollar thirty-seven. You can play, I think, you know, two cent, four cent limit was about it. And they had a game called Royal Hold'em, and it's mm -hmm. essentially the ultimate short deck. Uh, it was aces through tens. Everything else was removed. And I very quickly realized that people get all in on the flop. I mean, it's limit, and they just you know ship back and forth and get all in on the flop with if they flop to straight. 
Well, if you think it through rationally, there's only 10 through 8s in the deck. So by the river, the board either has to be paired or it has to be a straight. So if you're getting it all in with a straight against a set... Or a flush. Right. Yeah. Then you can't, you can't win. So if you have the set, then you know, you're basically guaranteed to win against people getting it in with a straight. And I just start doing this, and I start realizing holes in people's games and realizing flaws. I built that up slowly to, I want to say around $1,600 over the course of six months, a year. And, and that was my first a, April. What does a 13-year-old do with $1,600? Uh, you play online. <laughs> you, uh, I, well, I started playing more online, and I was a kid in high school that Oh, I, I want you know clothes from Hollister or wherever I want. I would literally go and I would build out order online and say, okay, it's two hundred and thirty-two dollars. I go into my Ultimate Bet account and I would play all day. I would make however much money I needed. I'd hit withdraw on that exact amount and I'd hit order. <laughs> Take out site. only what you need. <laughs> yeah. So. You're cruising along, building a, a modest high schooler bankroll, <laughs> which is an <laughs> yeah. absurd sentence. And, um, you know, it's time to graduate high school. What are your plans? So that's kind of funny. Um, I didn't really have much of one. I was, uh, I didn't have a lot of guidance. I was incredibly intelligent. Um, I was like top 5% of my class without trying, but I didn't have any guidance or direction of where to go. And... I had fallen into this business program called DECA, who ran marketing and management at school. And my teacher said, oh, you should apply for this scholarship. You, you know, I think you'd be a good fit for it. And it's for Johnson Wales University. And I said, okay, cool. I'll apply for a scholarship. And they called me up and they say, you know, you're one of the finalists for the scholarship. We want to fly you out to Colorado, show you around the campus. We're guaranteeing you like 10000 a year. And if you continue forward in it, you can have a free scholarship for the entirety of your college. Nice. So 10000 a year plus a free trip to Colorado. Sign me up. And uh, I had wanted to be a helicopter pilot, but everyone was telling me, you know, go to college, go to college, go to college. So this seemed like a sweet gig. I, I went out there. I went to the school. I did the scholarship competition. I didn't place well, so it was only 10000 a year, you know, only. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you, you meet a couple beautiful ladies out there. You, you drink a little alcohol, a little uh, statue of limitations up, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have some fun and you say Colorado is beautiful. The ladies are beautiful. The alcohol is good. And I uh, am paying for part of this. So I went to Johnson & Wales. I did a international business degree. And so how did that lead to the, uh, the armed forces? So while I was at college, because, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're a poker player now. How long have you been doing it? And, you know, 23 years. It's like, well, that's, that's true to an extent because I was in college. I was playing in college, but it was very rough off and on. I'd win 15000 I'd lose 15000 I'd win. I was just constantly between flush and broke. And so I think I left college in 2011. I played my very first WSOP, first time I was 21, and I took 12th in an event, uh, the PLO, $1,500 PLO event, 
I made $16,511. <laughs> Sticks with me to this day. Um, and so I, I went back home and I went to my parents' house. I was living with my parents. It's after college. And I just kind of, you know, my dad has this business with a friend. I worked for them for a bit and said, no, this isn't for me. And then I went and I worked for uh, ADT, the, the alarm company. Yeah. It was the most bullshit job I've ever worked in my life. I know that's one of your future questions. I'll answer it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's the worst job you've ever had? <laughs> yeah, it was because they, they hype it up and they build, you know, we're going to teach you the ways. We're going to show you how to make money. We're going to, you know, I was like, all right, cool. I'm in, I'm in. And they eventually, their entire sales technique boils down to here's a book of past clients. There's a alarm system in their building. They don't have it active anymore. Call them up. Cold call them. <laughs> Half of the numbers don't work. Good luck. I was like, oh, shit. And I quickly realized it wasn't for me. And then we went on a trip to Florida, which is supposed to be this great learning experience. And they're supposed to teach you the techniques. And I went out there, and, you know, there's people from all over, from, you know, New Jersey, Nevada, Texas, uh, you know, all over the U.S. And every person there that was there for training said the same thing was happening to them, and they didn't know how this was supposed to work, and no one felt comfortable in this company. And so I got drunk that night uh, while I was staying with friends. Uh, you know, we're having dinner. I'm staying with friends. I had a couple too many drinks. And the, some executives for ADT walk in the, the door, and they, uh, they're like, oh, how's it going, guys? I was like, well, your company fucking sucks, and I'm fucking out of here and going to the casino. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, what's your name? And I just walked away. I went to a casino that night, and I think I made two or three thousand playing uh, PLO. And I, you know, kind of unceremoniously quit on Monday when I got back to a job. But in the interterm, I went to Vegas. I literally said, screw it, I'm not even going back. I was supposed to go back for one more day of work that week. I skipped that <laughs> day of work. I went to Vegas. I made another couple thousand and then flew back. My boss was sending me these angry messages of, you know, what'd you do? Who are you? Da, 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 da. I was like, I'll see you on Monday. So I go back on Monday, just quit. And uh, the money eventually dried up from poker, and uh, I didn't have any other source of income. And that's when I was looking around. I was like, well, what do I do now? And uh, I, I honestly, I kind of got bored, and I didn't know where to go with my degree. You know, poker wasn't working at that point in time. And I just said, you know what? I've always wanted to join the military and challenge myself. So I spent probably a, a week doing research, and I walked into a recruiter and said, hey, I want to be an officer. That's crazy. I mean, I knew, I know you said you wanted to fly helicopters, but that seems like a very drastic choice at that point in your life. Most people make that decision, you know, right out of high school or uh, for, or for uh, the funds to go to college. Yeah, I was, uh, let's see. Graduated in 11. I joined in 2013, so I would have been 24, 23 and a half when I went in. Um, and if you have a degree, you can go in as an officer. You have to go through this interview process, and they make sure oh, you okay. qualify. And so I spent, uh, is April 15th, 2013, which is the exact same day as the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. So I remember that very distinctly because at the airport, 
all the TVs are just, you know, breaking news, you know, bombing people dead. Uh, we're under attack, and I'm just like, holy shit. You, know, you don't know. You don't know the full story. You don't know the extent of it. And that's what I was going into. It felt like you were going in, you signed up, and you're going to basic training on 9-11. That's, it was yeah. the absolute craziest time when a domestic terrorist attack happened the day that you were shipping off. It's, it's, uh, I, I remember that day very vividly. Obviously, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but uh, could you talk about you know, your time in uh, basic training and, and eventually what that led to, your oh, yeah. role in the, in the Army? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we talked a little before we start this up today. I'm, I'm an open book, you know. You may catch me for a second, but uh, now in uh, basic training, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, it's a middle of nowhere. I'm trying to remember what the actual city is nearby, but it's still known as one of the holdouts on old school training uh, because they would kind of go through techniques that are frowned upon in the rest of the military and have been banned, but they still get away with it. So we had, uh, you know, drill. are you talking about um, hazing, or are you talking about the actual training itself? I would go more with like uh, by by modern day standards, hazing. Okay. I'll tell you some of like exactly what I'm referencing, but uh, but the thing was, most of these drill sergeants um, had just come back from the war. So a lot of them had just come back from combat, and now they're placed with basically, in their eyes, kids, and they're babysitting. They don't want to be with us. And you know, one of them had just gone through cyber school twice and had failed out both times. So he's a you know rather crusty old man at, at us young kids. And uh, so is every day you you know you're never alone. That, that's the biggest portion that has an effect on people. You when you're asleep. When you're pissing, when you're shaving, when you're eating, when you're exercising, when you're breathing, there's at least one other person beside you, but usually 50 to 150 people. You're never alone. And so you get there and it's just, you know, you have your bunk and this is where you sleep. And when I say sleep, it's, it's all relative because you would exercise all day, every day. You'd be going in the, the, the hot sun of Georgia in the middle of summer and you'd never get enough sleep. And it got to the point that drills aren't check on you in the middle of the night. You have a, a fire guard desk is what it's called, where you have someone on guard at all times to make sure you know, nothing happens. And they would walk in and check in and make sure everyone's still there. And he walked in the door, and they're quiet. They're trying to let everyone sleep. But my, my bunk was right beside the door. And I jumped out of my bunk. And I went to attention. And I like called out, like, drill sergeant on deck. I was completely dead asleep. I have no idea this happened. Wow. Except for people <laughs> told me about it. Um, it's, and, and that happened throughout the course of my training. I still like don't sleep the best. And I think it, it does go back to some extent because of training. Um, but one, so I'm actually, I'm writing a book. Uh, I've talked about that in a podcast I did with Run Chucks recently. And it's been a long process in the making, but um, it starts off with this very story is, at basic training, I actually got uh, to go back to the barracks with one other soldier who needed to go on medical leave. Uh, so it's just me and him. as just the two of us. It was the most blissful experience of having, like, only one person beside you. And then the rest of the company comes back, and you just, you know, you're inside. You hear the drill sergeant yelling outside. 
and he's yelling, he's yelling. And then there's a thundering of feet and they all come, you know, running in the doors, thrashing around, just, you know, move out of the way, move, move, move. And they run into the bathroom and start filling their canteens. And, you know, me and the other guy are just like, all right, like, we don't know what's going on, but we're not part of it. We're going to, we're going to stay here. Right, buddy? So they run outside and drill sergeant starts yelling and you hear thunder and feet and it's quiet dead quiet for like seven, eight minutes. And then they come running back up and they repeat this process three or four times. And what was happening was, you know, someone messed up and the drills aren't had them take their canteens. They had 30 seconds to chug it and then drain the rest over their head, come up, refill their canteens in the bathroom, then run outside and run a lap around the track, which is a quarter mile. But first they have to get to the track, which is, downhill in the sand probably another quarter mile oh my god and that was just a process back and forth for probably you know four or five times so mile to two miles worth of running and chucking and uh at, at the end of it you know they come inside and they all just look queasy and the drill sergeant you know gets over in a parade rest and he says which one of you motherfuckers is going to throw up on my drill pad and like basically everyone like raises their hand he's like get outside go and they all run outside and just are throwing up everywhere. Oh. And like, you can't do that in the military. That's completely banned nowadays. That went out, you know, probably in Vietnam. But that, oh. that's the sort of stuff that like Fort Benning, like they pushed you physically, but they also did a little bit beyond that, that they were not supposed to. Ooh, my stepbrother uh, was a Marine and oh. uh, he, he told me the stories about in training about the uh, the gas chamber that they would make them go in. Oh, yeah. Uh, and take the mask <laughs> off. Did you have to do that? Uh, I think I did. That's brutal. I've done it many times. Oof. Three, four, I, or five times. I just saw a video of people coming out without their mask, just like it's completely blind, and everything's coming out of their face, every hole. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's, it'll clean you out. So, uh, <laughs> how long before they let you fly a helicopter? Well, so I actually didn't fly helicopters in the military. Oh, okay. Um. I, I was a field artillery officer in the military. Um, and I went to officer candidate school, and that's where you say, like, this is what branch I'm going to go into. And I said, oh, I'm going into aviation. And he said, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? So the recruiting office had never had an officer come into their doors before, someone wanting to be an officer, and they didn't know the process. But if you want to go aviation, you have to have an eye exam, you have to have a uh, flight physical, you have to go through extensive paperwork before you ever get to that stage. So anyone that was going to be a pilot had already been vetted and had all this paperwork done. So it wasn't a last minute thing. You can just be like, yes, I'm going in. They're like, no, you're not. So I kind of got hosed and ended up not going aviation as I wanted to. I went into field artillery, which took me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma where I was doing training out there from Halloween until June of, I want to say, uh, 16 to 17. Oh, no, I don't remember timelines. 14 to 15. Um, and then I was in Korea for about a year and a half, uh, which is where I met my wife out there. And then I came back and I was actually stationed at Oklahoma again. And after I got out of the military, I had three years of the GI Bill. And... Um, I went to Hawaii for a minute, married my wife. She has a girlfriend at that time. We, we got married in Hawaii. And then I actually went to World Series, which is where I won bracelet number one. 
I want a bracelet. And then I went off to flight school. And I used my GI Bill to go and learn how to fly helicopters. So I did that Got for it. a year and just said, you know, this isn't for me. Like on a scale of one to ten, it's like a six. Um, I don't want to spend the rest of my time away from my wife. We've already been apart for two or three years. Uh, but I mean, I, I got to a point, I flew a hel- helicopter completely by myself. You know, I have 80 plus hours under my belt. Uh, I didn't end up getting any of my licensing solely because I realized that I wasn't interested enough to fly. That wasn't worth it for me to go through the rigor that I was going to have to. So, wow. That's crazy that he signed up for the army to get there, and I guess you did. You did kind of get there through the army, right? In a roundabout way. Okay, so you're you're over there. You're stationed in uh, in South Korea, and uh, I. Whenever you get a break, are you going taking trips to Vegas? Is that kind of how it works? Oh God, no! I wish <laughs> <laughs> because you have res- you have tournament results during the time which in which you were in the military so how did that work yeah yeah that's that's absolutely uh true so in korea you get two weeks that you're able to go any place i actually went to germany to visit a friend uh but while i was in, stationed in korea i would meet up with my wife uh girlfriend at the time we would take a train and she was three hours south of me she was stationed uh down at a different camp and I would go to the casino first because she got off of work late and there's a, I think it's Walker Hill, if I'm not mistaken. And I would go there and I would play No Limit Hold'em and sometimes I would play a tournament and I actually won one of their tournaments for a couple thousand dollars. Um, so I would still, like, I kind of kept sharp on, on playing. But when I, when I was uh, in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, so 2015, 2016, would be the results you're looking at, right? I got your all your results up. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Um, yeah, so 15 and 16, I was in. So you'll you'll actually see a gap uh, in there from like June 2013 until probably September of 2015, I want to say, or maybe even longer than that, because I was actually overseas or stationed anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so if we look, uh, I'm seeing what you're seeing here with 16, um, in 16, I was in the military that entire time and I would just, uh, I would take leave. I would take leave and say, Hey, I'm going to go, you know, into Oklahoma. So a lot of those ones are from Oklahoma tournaments. Oh, and, Choctaw. Yeah. Yeah. Choctaw. Or, uh, uh, I actually won that one for the record. We chopped hmm. it up and I got third place. For tax purposes, by won that Congress high low. <laughs> <sighs> Just saying, nobody's tournament results page is accurate. <laughs> it's one <laughs> no, of the craziest things. We actually, um, this was like twelve years ago, got a, a visit from the IRS um, <laughs> here at Card Player, and we were like, "What do you want?" And they were like, "Where do you get your results? How do you know they're accurate?" And apparently, they were trying to use that information to to uh, talk to some poker players. But we were like, none of this is accurate. It's just reported by the casino. You know, it doesn't take into account deals half the time. Yeah, so we took the heat off the community. Appreciate (laughs) it. Doing the Lord's work out there, Julio. Yeah, we're trying. Now Canada's uh, not being too friendly to their players, apparently. So 
hey, you know, we're all playing a game of, of luck. Uh, Jonathan <laughs> Giamma's fathers just hit me up. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. Um, all right. So you are in your last year in the Army, and you make a deep run in the World Series of Poker main event, finish 176th for 42K. Uh, is that kind of what made you decide poker? Poker's the way to go? So, I mean, as we, we've said, I've been playing poker off and on for, you know, it, it's in my blood. You know, yeah. I was listening beforehand, uh, re-listening to one you did with Doyle, and he's talking about maybe poker is genetic when you look at Pam and you look at Todd. It's in my blood. Um, so that one, that main event, I was... I was down around twenty-five or thirty thousand going to the main event. Uh, I've been staying all around town because whatever is free or cheap. I think I was staying at the Luxor that day, and I didn't even have the money in my pocket to buy into the main event. I didn't have any friends in town. You know, I, I haven't until recently had many friends within the poker world, and I transferred money from one account to like my Bank of America account, so I could go to a bank and withdraw the money. And it didn't transfer. So I, I hit up my dad and said, hey, can you, you know, send me whatever I need, four or 5000 uh, And he was like, yeah, I can do that. And I was like, yeah, I'll transfer from this other account. And thankfully it showed up. And then I looked on my phone and I said, oh, here's the Bank of America. I walked down there because I didn't want to spend the money on a taxi. It's summertime in Vegas. Terrible yeah, idea. That's awful. It's not a bank. It's an ATM. You can't, <laughs> you know, can't withdraw the money. So then I have to take a taxi, I go to a bank, and this is very like day 1D or 1E or whatever it is, very last day. I'm already two hours late to registration. Yeah, half the field's already gone. <laughs> uh, yeah. I go to this bank, and I'm like, hey, you know, I, I need to withdraw like a lot of money. Like, hopefully you can do it. Please, please, please. And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever, kid. It's 10000 Here you go. And you're like, oh, thank God. And... <laughs> Uh, so I, I withdraw and I rush to the taxi. I rush to the, the Rio. I think I'm three and a half hours late to the last day of the main event. But I'd sold off action to family and friends. I'd probably had 65% of myself. And now I said, I was going to play it. I'm going to play it. And uh, that was a summer saver for me um, by mm -hmm. far and away. And everyone's congratulating me. It's, oh, it's amazing. It went in like I'm still in the military. You know, they're like, this is this is huge. And it went in like the, the company's report up to battalion of like, Oh, we have a poker player in our midst. I'm like, what is going on? Like I had a break even summer. I made like $4,000. Like, <laughs> everyone thinks it's just awesome. And you're like, yeah, guys, it was nice. Yeah. Well, you got some, uh, some street cred, uh, in oh, the barracks yeah. at least. Um, <laughs> uh, so you get out of the army and do you just head straight to Vegas or, do you have like a plan in place? Well, let me back it up one, because we have probably my most interesting cash on record while I was still in, right before I got out. That's a, the Windstar main event on September 6th. So okay. I, I was still in the military. I, you know, I talked with my boss. I said, it's a four-day weekend. I think it always lands Memorial Day. I said, hey, I'm going to fly up to Wyoming um, to, for a wedding. He said, okay, cool. So my plan was, and this is what happened, I played the Windstar main event on Thursday, I believe, day one, until about three in the morning, and they resumed on Sunday if you made day two. I played until about three in the morning, four in the morning, 
drove down to Dallas, had breakfast with my parents, hopped on a flight to middle of nowhere, Wyoming, hmm. rented a car. And so I'm on like an hour and a half of sleep, rent a car, drive to a small little hotel, you know, 45 minutes from the airport. I don't know anyone there, but, you know, the groom. And I make a couple friends. We start drinking. We go to the wedding. Enough bottles of wine start flowing. I, you know, this seems to be a common theme. I swear I'm not an alcoholic, but, uh, <laughs> you know. He's your social drinker. Uh, very much so. Uh, I will have a glass. And it, it gets to the point where they're like, hey, you've had enough to drink. We'll drive you home. So we leave my car at the wedding reception. So I, uh, I wake up, you know, middle of the night. Uh, I may have desecrated their, their hotel room, tried to clean it up with some, you know, bath towels and threw it in a bathtub. I still feel bad for the maid. Oof. But I, uh, I, I look at my phone and, you know, I read the tickets, you know, 10.07 flight. I look at my phone. It's like 7.30. I have a 45-minute drive to get to my car, plus probably a 30-minute drive from there to get to the airport. And I have a tournament to get back to. So, like, I can't, like, miss this yeah, flight. Yeah, it's, not, it's is... not like you could sleep in like any other D-Gen poker player. Yeah. You have to be there. <laughs> We're not messing around here. Like, there's money on the line. So I go downstairs and I say, hey, guys, you know, I, I need a taxi. I say, oh, honey, this is Wyoming. We don't have taxis out here. <laughs> I say, oh, fuck. I don't know anyone. I, I don't, you know, I drink with a bunch of people, but I don't have their numbers. So they literally get the maintenance man to take a break and drive me to this reception. And we're chatting a whole time while I'm trying to not throw up in his car. And uh, he was... He's nice enough to be like, oh, like, you're military. I appreciate what you're doing. Don't worry about it. I was trying to, like, pay him for his time. He's like, don't worry. I was like, okay, man. Like, I jump in the car. I fly to the airport, trying not to get pulled over. I show up, and the airport's not even open. I'm like, my flight's in, like, 45 minutes. What do you mean the airport's not open? I, like, double-check my ticket, and I read the flight number, flight number 1037. Oh, man. Thankfully, I had three hours to catch my flight. I was about to say, you didn't miss a plane. No, <laughs> no. And uh, so I, you know, you know, so everything resolves itself. I make my way home and I, I made it back to Windstar. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I, it, it's kind of my saddest moment as well in poker because at 13 people left. Hold on, I, I got to set up the question. Okay. What was okay. the, what was the, uh, the most painful close <laughs> finish of your poker career? Yeah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> um. We had 13 people left. I was second in chips to Gordon Veo, who was first in chips. And the Windstar main was a special one. They guaranteed a million dollars for first place, but they didn't have the prize pool to support it. So it went like one million for first, 220,000 for second. Yeah, I'm looking right now. Uh, Gordon ended up winning it for 587. So they must have did a deal. And that's the thing. So at 13, I'm second in chips. I know if I make the final five or six people, I'm not guaranteed the you know 50,000 on paper. I'm guaranteed probably a quarter million, 300,000, 400,000. So I go from second in chips at 13 to busting at 11. Oof. And I make 25,000, which is nice. You know, it's good money. But, you know, if you last five more people, it's quarter million easy. Was We're it done. a particularly tough beat? Did you make a mistake or? I messed up. Not a question about it. Um, who I think it was was it Grant? I want to say it's Grant Hinkle. I'm pretty sure. Um, 
raised on the button. Yeah, whatever it was at that time, somewhere between 2X and 7X. It was, you know, 2016, who knows? <laughs> and uh, I just open ripped from the big blind for 38 big blinds uh, with Ace-8 suited. Wow. I think I was just tired. I had a long weekend. I was just like, <laughs> you know what? let's go. That's a wide opening play. Yeah, he uh, he went. He had pocket queens, and, you know, that's the story. Ouch, ouch. So. <laughs> But, yeah, it was uh, probably the most interesting tournament I've ever played with that two- or three-day hiatus uh, in between. Well, let's get to the highlights then. Um, We fast-forward a year, and you are at the World Series of Poker in the $1,500 Pot Limit Omaha 8 or Better event. You take it down, win the bracelet for $223,000. First of all... First of all, how did you uh, find yourself in that event? I shouldn't have played it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just came from Hawaii. I've been married 23 days prior. And we had already agreed I was going to a World Series of Poker. And she knew. She's okay with me being a poker player. And uh, I played probably five or six events before them. And I was burned out. I'd been out there for two or three weeks. And I was ready to take a break. And hit up a friend back home and said, hey, man, I'm thinking of coming back to Texas. You around? He said, no, I'm down in Houston. Come next week. So I was supposed to fly out the like day of the PLOA event. I wasn't even supposed to play it. And uh, yeah, I said, okay, well, I guess I'll play this event and then you know, see where you're at. And uh, day one, I honestly don't remember anything of note. It's just another tournament. Yeah, I made it through nice and easy. Day two was a struggle. I, I got down to about five big blinds before or right after we made the money. And then uh, had a certain dip in his hand where everyone decided to limp in um, for some reason. And I had like king, king, nine, four on the button, hit trips on the flop and, you know, probably got up to about 15 or 20 big blinds. And I think it was enough to, you know, make me make me be able to limp into day three with like 27 people left or something like that. It was a and, lot. Uh, yeah. And, and day three, I just, uh, I was playing well. And I mean, if you check the, the, the updates, even now it's at the final table, it says what was happening then, but it's the course of the entire day. Cause it's talking about how I was on fire. I couldn't be stopped. I was a runaway train. I was the most dominant performance of the year. And that was my day three. Whatever I need, it happened. If I need a one-outer, it came. If I needed two outs, it came. If I needed the guy brick 32 outs, it, it happened. It was um, it was fast. It was furious. And it was, uh, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was nice. <laughs> so what, what are you feeling as, uh, as you can see the bracelet at the finish line? You know what I mean? There's six players left, five, four. How are you feeling as it's becoming closer and closer and not only that, but you're also locking up a bigger payday. So I was chip leader, I think, throughout the entire final table to the point I didn't check paydays. I was, I was in charge. We got down to, I believe it was final four people, and we took a dinner break. Someone said, okay, I won it. I went to uh, Aria with my buddy, and you know, we're talking through things. We're talking strategy. We're talking how things are rolling. And he said, okay, like I'm playing cash game. I'll drop you off. And then I'll wrap up the cash game. I'll come rail you. I said, okay, cool. We came back and it was exactly one hour and one hand of playing. 
because the blinds went up on the very first hand of heads up. So we played exactly one hour. And the very first hand, I, I was the victor. And so it literally happened so fast. I knocked out four peoples in one hour and one hand. It happened so quickly mm-hmm. that I didn't have time to register. I, I, was, in, I was in shock. I was in disbelief. It, it didn't feel real holding a bracelet, looking at the money. There was one guy on my rail I knew, and he's just like looking at me like, holy shit, you just did it. I'm like, I just did it. I, I have a <laughs> video, and I'm just like, I, I point the bracelet. I'm literally pointing at it. I'm like, this just happened. And you just see it in my face. You see this sense of relief and disbelief and it got i mean to be real julio like what happened is like i i had that i had the entire moment he left he went off to you know play some craps or whatever i went and i played 2040 omaha eight or better i didn't tell a soul i didn't tell the floor i didn't tell the people i was playing with i played for three or four hours because i had to just release that tension and, and calm down wow um, it was, it, it happened so suddenly. I just needed that like release. That's, that's, that's a great story. My buddy, Michael Gross actually finished fourth in that tournament. Oh, uh, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Michael. He's, uh, he's moved, he's since moved to Florida. I hope he's uh, doing well. Um, but yeah, that's great. So what do you, what do you keep the bracelet or the first bracelet? I should say. Well, so I actually gave bracelet number one to my dad. Bracelet number two went to my mom, but on this most recent trip, they were here not too long ago, and uh, <clears throat> someone had requested to see them in Vegas, so they brought them both to Vegas, and they're actually sitting about six inches from me right now. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you get a uh, part-time custody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. Uh, all right, so let's talk about the second bracelet, because that happened this summer. And it was much different, even though the event was similar. Yeah, it was. Uh, so obviously, you know, we've had the pandemic that's uh, upon us, and that caused the WSOP to shift over into the online realm. And this year, it was a six hundred dollar PLO eight six max tournament. So the buy-in was different. The format was a little different. But before it happened, I, I went to the back room. I told my wife, you know, you have the dogs. This is the one that I feel I have a good shot of winning. If I'm going to win anything in summer, this is it. And I went into it quite honestly saying, you know, I don't quite respect these as bracelets. Uh, I don't know. I'm in it for, I'm in it for the large prize pool. Uh, how many times do you have a chance to play a PLO8 event with, you know, 90K up top? You know, never. And um, when we got down to the final seven people, it was a battle back and forth. I've been a chip leader literally the entire tournament up until then. At the final seven, it was a battle back and forth um, just to make it to the final table. I was constantly a short stack. And then at the final table, once I got there, I, I had some key pots go my way. And I was like, oh, I can, I can do this. This is real. And we got down to heads up, uh, me and I think it was Danish 01, if I remember correctly. And that name Shane Daniels. Yeah, uh, I owe him my bracelet. I owe him the extra forty thousand. And I say that, and with all due respect, he played heads up terribly. I thought he played most of the tournament terribly. Um, <laughs> well, so the reason I say this is seven-handed. He was at our table. We had four people at our table. He was the monstrous chip leader. Had five times as much as anyone else, and he would 
either limp or fold on my big blind when he was in the small blind 100% of the time. He never raised. He never applied any pressure. If he limped, then I would just re-raise him. Uh, if he folded, obviously, I'd just win. And it got to a point, it was almost absurd. Like, he was trying to keep me in. I, I don't understand it. So he is a perfect heads-up opponent. Maybe uh, he knew that you had won a previous PLO <laughs> 8 bracelet, and he was practicing avoidance. <laughs> he was scared. He was real exactly. scared. <laughs> um, but I went in, I think, with an 8-1 to chip lead, and he actually made a comeback and, and took the chip lead several times. And, you know, I went in just cocky and confident and said, I got this, this guy's easy. And I put up a fight, and once he took the chip lead, I, it became real. I said, oh, like, I have a chance to lose this. How much extra money is on the line? There's a bracelet on the line. Oh, shit. Like, it, it became a lot more real. And uh, once I closed it out, then it was, it was kind of the same feeling. as a surge of relief. I think it was 2.30 in the morning. And I just felt relief spread through my body. I, I didn't go to bed for three hours. I just kind of sat there and hung out and just chilled. And it, it, because I'd won previously, you know, in a live event, and I now had the online, and I had the same wave of emotions, it changed my attitude towards the online segment. And I said, you know, okay, this is a real bracelet. It has the same feeling. It has the same connection. It has that same notoriety attached to it. Yeah, and obviously being in the two bracelet club is a lot more exclusive than the one bracelet club. Did you feel a sense of validation? My, my wife's parents don't understand poker. And when they heard I won it, they said, oh, that's cool. Good job. I looked it up online. And at that point in the summer, there's 237 people other than me who had done this in the entire (laughs) world. And so I felt like when you can look at that and you can say, yeah, like I did something 237 other people have done the world. Like that puts you into such an exclusive club. I felt like that was a moment of validation I could point to and say, yeah, I'm not just a, a one-shot, not a fluke. Um, I'm, I'm something special. So there was a definitely a, a sense of validation within that. Well, that's a surprising number. I would have guessed it's more. Yeah. It's, uh, does that include everyone with three or more and four or more and all that? Yep. yep. Wow. I think it jumped uh, after that because several other people won online duels. So I think it's around 250 right now. But... Yeah, still we'll we'll be we'll be decades away from that being a thousand people. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be in small company for a while. Um, okay, so obviously I look at all your results and I'm seeing a lot of caches for PLO eight or better. Um, what is it about your game that uh, is well suited to that format? When I was in that hiatus between college and the military, I was playing at Windstar, I was playing No Limit Hold'em, I played a little bit of 08, and someone approached me and asked if I wanted to deal uh, underground games in, in Dallas. And I dealt underground 08 games for a while, so I have a lot of experience with, like, is limit, but still, like, the split pot concept. And for some reason, I took that with me for about a year of dealing that and just watching. And then when I was playing in college... Most of what I was playing was sit-and-goes, and for some reason I gravitated towards PLO8 specifically. And I was just getting in 50 to 100 reps a day of sit-and-goes of PLO8. And 
I think it's just how I view the game. It's how I process things, how I, I look at the split pot nature. And it's very different than a lot of people. And I've transitioned even now into the mixed game community. And the majority of those games are split pot games. And it's allowed me to adapt and very quickly get to a point of being a winning player in mixed games because just understanding split pot uh, dynamics is, is uh, I think, critical for that success. What do you think is the biggest obstacle for players trying to get into mixed games? Like, what's the first hurdle for them for, for that thing to click or be unlocked in their brain? Well, the first hurdle at this stage, because of online poker not offering it, uh, especially stateside a little bit you know, around the world, but is there aren't games available. Yeah. Um, so there's no low-stakes games. There's a, a 918 that sometimes runs over the Aria. Um, but how do you say, like, learn mixed games, come into our 3060 game? <laughs> yeah, and even 918 is not a beginner stakes. Right. You can still lose, you know, 800 trying to learn that in the night trying to learn the rules. So the biggest hurdle uh, in mixed games specifically is that hurdle of trying to find stakes and trying to have an intro level. Uh, so I've, I've talked with people trying to build bridges between games. You know, sometimes pre-COVID, there was a 3060 game at Bellagio and 8160 over at, uh, at the win. And there's no bridge between them. There's no bridge between a 918 and a 3060. There's no 2040. There's no bridge beneath the 918. There's no meetup games. But people are interested in them. People want these stakes. They just don't have the connections to make it happen. They just don't have the ability to make that work. So that's what's brought me into um, a large part of the media side is trying to establish a bridge for mixed games, establish a, a home for the community of mixed games, is I want to give back for everything that poker has given me and try to find an avenue for people to, uh, to come into this world. So uh, is mixed your general game of choice, mixed cash, your general game of choice these days? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I started playing April of last year. I, I said I'm a very fast study on it, and I started playing... I think I played 4-8 or 9-18, whatever it was back then, Aria, in April of last year, and now my regular game is the uh, 81-60 over at Win. Now, the people in that game, would we recognize them? Would the people at home recognize them? Or are these the quiet uh, killers who come in and they, they don't need the, the limelight of tournament success? Well, do you know the name Ali Najat? <laughs> or uh, Brandon Shaq Harris. Uh, yeah, I Joe should interview Kian. both of them. <laughs> yep. I, I, two of my favorite podcasts you've done. Uh, Joe Tehan plays in there. Mark Gregorich plays in there. Um, but there is still a handful of people that are, you know, beneath the radar. No, no names to it, but, you know, very, very good guys. And uh, we've built that game as... It's not private by any stretch of imagination. We all text each other. We have a group chat. And we say, hey, like, who wants, to, who wants to play today? You know, if someone new comes in, if they see us at the casino and they say, oh, I want in, it's like, you know, if there's a seat open, there's a seat open. But we also will add them to the list of like, hey, you know, here's a group chat. Because we realize that so often we would just show up to Bellagio when it's run back there and it would sit around for three or four hours twiddling your thumbs because several guys have said, maybe I'll play tomorrow. Yeah. So we've established a nice community um, within 
within the mixed game world for that game. And uh, it's a weird environment, Julio. <laughs> it's it's weird. We're space aliens. Um, but we'll also like we'll all go and grab dinner after the game or have lunch before the game. Uh, so it's it's a lot of friends, but we're also doing it obviously for the money. Yeah, uh, let's let's get into some rapid fire questions here. You are named Gamble. <laughs> That's I mean obviously Chris Moneymaker winning the main event. That that was his name was a big part of it. Do you feel like your name led you down the path of poker in any way? I don't think I could have kept off this path if I wanted to. I. You don't think if your name was Nathan Tax Accountant, <laughs> you would have gone a different route? <laughs> no, I. We we had this conversation. I think it was in the eighty game the other day of how much would someone have to pay you to change your name, and. If you change my first name, okay, like it, it wouldn't cost you too much. I, I don't have over attachment to it, but <laughs> to change my last name at this stage of the game would cost one hell of a lot. <laughs> you have to uh, bet you to do perfect. it. Yeah. I'll just bet you that you won't change your last name. <laughs> it, <laughs> That's it would how have you do to it. be a large bet. <laughs> That's, I just imagine you growing up and people always saying, oh, he took a gamble, you know, constant puns, constantly about you gambling. And then, you know, it's like incep Inception. <laughs> it's uh i i honestly i feel like if i had been born uh you know a couple of years earlier and had the success i did a couple of years earlier then i mean for full tilt for ultimate bet party poker whoever it was back in the day like they would have gobbled me up as an ambassador without a second thought uh let's talk a little bit about the galfon challenge because you have been lending your commentary skills to that heads-up battle. Uh, for those who don't know what's going on, can you give a quick summary? Yeah, so Phil Galfon put out a challenge uh, back last year to the world and said he will offer, offer odds for anyone that wants to challenge him in heads-up PLO. Several people have taken that challenge. Uh, Action Freak and Vinny Vitti are online challengers, and he beat both of them uh, at the onset of the pandemic back in February through... Um, July timeframe, and now Phil is at the stage of battling against Chance Corneth. So Chance represents Chip Leader Coaching. He's their head coach and founder of Chip Leader Coaching, while Phil is the you know head coach and founder of Run It Once. So Phil laid Chance four to one. So it's Phil's one million dollars to Chance's quarter million dollars. And it's over the course of 35,000 hands online, heads up PLO. They're playing two tables at once. So right now, we're about 45% of the way through this challenge. And it's been a back-and-forth battle, Julio. At the onset, you saw Phil jumping out to a $280,000 lead very quickly. And it got to a point that busted chances roll online. We had to take a two-week hiatus. <laughs> he, he stopped playing. He reloaded, you know, took his briefcase full of cash down to... Caesar's Palace, reload his account, and then he made one hell of a comeback. He erased the deficit from Phil, and then he took a lead of 340000 And um, we, we're on break right now. Phil got some momentum going, and he's down about 90000 which, uh, you know, for, for how we've seen this challenge going, is pretty respectable. And we're on break right now for a couple weeks over Thanksgiving holidays, as well as Chance has a WPT 
final table to play on December 3rd. So they're kind of living him have that time to adjust his mindset and hopefully take down that half a million dollar prize over there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that with uh, Henry Kilbane. Uh, for those of you that watch WSOP Europe, he did the commentary for them. Um, we're doing it with uh, another streamer, 08 Grinder, hops in there when we're unavailable sometimes. Uh, he also takes on the Saturdays. We're doing it with Thalo, which is Alex Epstein, won the short deck 10K event at the World Series. So it's really just a great group of guys and a great group of commentary. And I mean, honestly, the, the reason that we're doing this the viewership isn't what we want right now. We're trying to tweak some things. It's no Doug Polk versus Negreanu where they're getting 6,000 people a day. But the reality of life is we believe in Phil Galifon. We believe in Run It Once and what he's trying to do for this community because he's trying to give back and he's trying to build a positive platform for poker, both in his training site as well as his poker site. And honestly, for me, whatever we can do to support him, we owe it to him. So that's that's a lot of why we're doing it, and you know he's won every challenge so far. He's down right now, but I think there's a very good chance he'll he'll uh, beat Chance on this one. <laughs> yeah, if he takes a gamble, uh, <laughs> take a chance on gamble. Exactly. So uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in general about these heads up matches that seem to be happening these days. Obviously, it was a little bit born out of necessity after the pandemic kind of shut live poker down for a bit. Uh, but you know, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you like the idea of, of this trend continuing for a while? Do you want to get involved yourself? Do you think, uh, uh, Phil will challenge you to PLO eight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, first time I ever met Phil was when he won the PLO eight event, the 10 K I took yeah. 17th or 18th that year. I, I have an 18th and a 17th in that one. Uh, I think it was 18th, but I met him there. Very, very nice guy. Um, He'll be the first to tell you PLO8 is not his strong suit, which is funny with a mm-hmm. 10K bracelet. Um, so I think what Poker Go is doing, that live format, is really the way forward. Um, the Antonio versus Phil Helmuth, because it has a dynamic, you can watch the players, you feel that that energy going back and forth. And I, I mean, I hearken back to the Rail Heaven days, though. Right. You remember, was it uh, Hastings versus Isildur? Yeah, Towns, Brian Towns said as well. Yeah, well, the what, the, the $4 million night? Mm-hmm. I watched that thing through and through. <laughs> and so I, I think I think there is a little revitalization of poker that is coming off of this pandemic. And I think it's it's definitely good for poker. It's never going to be bad to have you know public matches out there like this. Yeah, I was thinking back. I'm mean, even Daniel back in the day when the Win Cardroom first opened had that series of like uh, I think it was half a million mm-hmm. each challenge in every game, and he, he and Barry Greenstein did battle for a, a long time. Heads yeah. up, Barry Mimi Tran, mm-hmm. uh, which was Barry's girlfriend slash protege at the time. Yeah. So. Uh, I read that you were a theater student. (laughs) (laughs) I myself got a a scholarship to college uh, for for some high school theater. I'm wondering what roles you played. Oh. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so the first couple years of high school, I was on the tech side. So I did tech theater, and then I switched over to, you know, the actual acting part of it. 
let me tell you a story, Julio. <laughs> let me tell you a story. So we had to audition for a role in theater class, and you had to memorize a three-minute monologue beforehand. Uh, and that was what your performance piece was for the audition. And I got probably too caught up in poker and never actually memorized one. So I went on stage and I literally just started going off the cusp. <laughs> and I told this story about how I just got you know, out of jail and I came home to my beautiful wife, but she was in bed with my brother. And I don't know. I just start. I mean, I, that's all I remember. But I just start going. You know, they're like, cut. And I'm like, oh, thank God. And my theater director was like, man, that was a really good uh, performance. Like, that was really good. Where did you get that from? I was just like, oh, the uh, Woodwork diary, sir. He's like, what? I've never heard of it. What is it? I'm like, all right, I just made it up on the spot. And he was just like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, I just made it up. He's like, oh, I want to read the rest of it. I was like, oh. Uh, I didn't do any major. I was a bit actor. I was never in a, like, scenes. I made a high school musical, and they told me not to sing. You know, like, I wasn't the guy leading the stage by any stretch of imagination. What was, what was your most famous role in high school? Well, uh, we did a show called Cinderella Wore Combat Boots. <laughs> All right. It was, it was just a joke version of the Cinderella story. And I played Prince Charming. And uh, this was, you know, 60 pounds ago. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently I was good enough that I won a, a, a college scholarship with that performance. Did one more show in college and realized, you know, I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, here I am living um, my theater dreams vicariously through a poker podcast. Uh, but, you know, that is interesting that uh, you have that background given how well you do with your commentary. You know, you don't seem to be stumbling over any words or being flustered by all the action. Um, you said helicopter flying was a 6 out of 10. Mm -hmm. What would you consider a 10 out of 10? Solid I know question. You are, I know you are an a, a adrenaline junkie. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. Uh, we, we talked about that for a second. Um, back in high school, I, I rode a bull. I, you know, that's the interesting thing. Everything's different. Like, I rode a bull in high school at, like, 18, 19. And what it taught me is, like, time. Because I was <laughs> on there, I, was, I think I was on there the full eight seconds but it felt like everything was so slow. It felt like a minute long I was on there. It felt like the bull stopped at one point for 30 seconds. And, you know, afterwards, my friend's like, oh, it stopped for like, you know, barely half a second. And it just, it changed the perception of time. Um, skydiving changes your perception of the landscape because you're able to view the world from a very, very different uh, lens. I have my scuba diving license. I lived in Hawaii with my wife for a while. And, uh, you know, being underwater and being floating and free almost is, you know, it just teaches you, um, you know, that, that, that feeling of, of freedom. Um, I, I did bungee jumping in New Zealand, and that was probably the most scared I've ever been in my life. Um, because, like, when you jump off the bridge and you don't realize there's something attached to you and you just say what the hell did I just do why am I jumping to my death what's going on oh my god oh my god and then like it catches you and you say oh yeah thank god there's a reason I did this so <laughs> I mean it's like it, I think just living 
you know? Just just travel is probably 10 out of 10. Going there, experiencing different cultures, going there and viewing the people around you, understanding how people live. Um, I, I know probably on this rapid fire, one of the questions you ask is, what's what your biggest pet peeve in poker? Mm-hmm. And my biggest pet peeve, and this is because I'm well-traveled, because I've seen people in Korea, uh, some not in the best situations, living with the threat of war beside them. I have seen, you know, uh, terrorism over in, in Europe. I've seen the, the places people live in. And it's when you're at a poker table and someone is just raging and raging, they're on full-blown tilt, and they lose perception. They, they lose where they are in the world. Because you're sitting in a multi-billion dollar casino, you have whatever you want to drink at your fingertips, cold, fresh, you have a beautiful cocktail waitress, you have you know, thousands of dollars in front of you that you should be able to lose and not affect your life tremendously, that you're able to bring in. And when you rage and you leave, you're going to jump in your car and you're going to drive to your house. What do you have to be mad about? Yeah. And that's my <laughs> biggest pet peeve, it's just... Like, I know multimillionaires that rage harder than the guy with $20 in his pocket, and they just have lost their perception of reality. And I think it's just people that don't have that perspective and, and don't appreciate with what they have in this world. So you've been all over. Is there something left on your bucket list? What's at the top of your bucket list? You know, before uh, an hour and a half ago, Julio? <laughs> Don't flatter me too much. <laughs> hey, if you think I'm kidding, I, I, uh, you know, a lot of stuff has popped up since I won that second bracelet. I, I not only got interviewed by card player, but then, you know, y'all hit me up and said, do you want to write articles for me? I was smiling ear to ear, but my wife will tell you for three days, I, I wrote my first article before I even, you know, messaged uh, Steve back. Um, and to do this, this podcast to, so for me, within the poker world, I am, you know, bucket list is, is, you know, whatever comes next, that's the pinnacle. This is the pinnacle. Whatever comes next, I'm just, I'm a kid with a dream uh, mm-hmm. in this world. But as far as, like, outside of that, I think a lot of it is just experiential. Um, that's how I've lived my life so far. And I don't have anything directly on my bucket list, but... I think a lot of it would be food related of traveling mm-hmm. and, and going and experiencing some of those foods. Maybe, maybe running with the bulls if we had to get into like a really nitty gritty answer for you. Well, it doesn't have to be dangerous. I mean, obviously that's your cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, have, have you ever turned anything down? Has anything been too gnarly for you? No. <laughs> Nothing that comes to mind. That's the new challenge, uh, all of Nate's friends listening. Go out yeah. and uh, find an activity he, he'll chicken out of. See if he can get them. I, you know, I, I learned early that uh, you have more regrets in life for the stuff that you say no to than the stuff that you do. So, yeah, I honestly, I, I don't say no to a lot. Uh, what's the biggest pot you've ever won or lost? It could be a, a dollar amount. It could be a situational one. So... Obviously, tournament-wise, equity-wise, that's the one everyone hits you with because you're you're talking with the the big leagues, high rollers here. Uh, yeah, we're we're gonna stray away from that. So, cash-wise, <laughs> you know, I, I played um, 
uh, nothing overly significant, but the one that sticks out the most in my head was I had taken a trip to Hawaii from college. I stopped over the airport. I missed my flight because of uh, it was a time zone change and my phone didn't change over. So I was stuck in the airport for like six or seven hours. I was playing online on Ultimate Bet. And I was playing heads up PLO against Yellow Sub, which is Jeff mm. Williams. Yeah, yeah Jeff. old school. Um, and I had loaded about 80% of my bankroll onto Ultimate Bet because they told me they'd give me a free seat into the main event, uh, you know, $3,500 seat. I was young, I was dumb, I didn't realize there was something called rollover, and that <laughs> I was basically locking my, my bankroll down for six months' time uh, if I played cautiously. So I said, screw it. I started playing 1020 PLO, and I probably had $15,000 online, which was 80% of my bankroll. And... I built up a pretty big stack, like an 8K stack. And it was heads up PLO. I want to say he was on the button. He makes it 60. I make it 180. He makes it, uh, whatever that is, 540. I make it 1620. So this is back in a heyday of PLO where no one really understood. So he has about 8K. I have 8K. I make it 1620 preflop. He flats it. We have, you know, 6,500 behind. I have like ace, ace, six, seven. The flop comes out four, five, five. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, all right, this is a pretty solid flop. Like, I, I'm okay with this. You know, whatever I bet and he bet and the money got in. Let's just say it. You know, I don't think I potted it, but we probably put in like five or six back and forth raises where you should know your beat. And he ends up with something like five, seven you know, nine jack <laughs> and I bink off an eight on the turn and just nail that like that straight draw and thought I was the best player in the world. It's probably a 15.7k pot. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, that's the one that sticks out to me. It's like, maybe I play a bigger pot or two, but most of my stuff is limit nowadays. And yeah, you don't cross those boundaries too often. Well, That's it's also the importance out. of that pot, right? What what so happens important. if you don't win that pot? Oh, so important. <laughs> you know, that pot was so bad, Jeff quit poker. <laughs> Moved yeah, back no to one's Georgia. heard from him, uh, heard from him since. <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, what about the weirdest place you've ever played poker for money? Oh, damn it. So you asked me before we started if there's any question that I want you to ask. This is the one. Okay. All right, Julio. <laughs> With somebody as well-traveled as you, I'd be hard-pressed not to ask it. No, it's in, uh, it's in Dallas, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, as I said, I was, I was dealing these underground games, right? And they were in these VA centers. VA centers are obviously underground for uh, poker clubs. Let's all be real. And... This guy came in and he played for a while and talked with me outside and said, "Hey man, I'm uh, I'm gonna start my own joint. I want you to deal for me." I said, "All right, like I'll, I'll work you out know, a couple of nights there, a couple of nights here." So I, he gives me the address and I show up. And I shit you not, it's this like 60, 80 acre drive-in movie theater. Mm. And it was this old, rundown field that had been converted into a flea market. So you like drive up to the gate, you give them a call, there's barely any cell phone service, and it's this old like gate that someone has to manually come out and like crank up for you. And it's just like this 
fair yard carnival area where half of these these booths are run down and they have cobwebs on them. Half of them have, you know, like carnival toys and flea market items. It's this very weird atmosphere. You kind of drive back through into this this uh, little amusement park. It, I mean, it's kind of creepy. Let's be real. It's you know it's starting to get dark. It's dusk is coming down, and we go into a not convenience store, but a uh, whatever the stands are with all the food and the popcorn and the hot dogs. Yeah. And that's at the front. You have your soda machine, you have your ice cream machine, you have a popcorn machine at the front, and then you have in the back like four tables set up. <laughs> and it's just the most surreal place. And, you know, I dealt there for a while. I played there a little bit off and on. But you're in the middle of this like desolate 80-acre field that's supposed to be a drive-in movie theater with creepy clown dolls as you drive in. And it was it was by far and away the most surreal place I've ever played poker, dealt. And I just look at that and say, like, how did no one just get killed? Like in the movie, someone always gets killed out there. Right. I think Haunted Drive-In Carnival is the winner so far for <laughs> for weirdest place, especially since it was just Dallas, not like some some weird uh, country you were in. This yeah. is just uh, in your backyard. Yeah, it was probably 20 minutes from my house. And, like, I kind of had a sense of dread every time I headed there on, you know, Thursdays and Sundays. Or <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty regular game. Do you have a celebrity doppelganger? Or uh, have people told you you look like somebody? So, in high school, I got the kid's brother from High School Musical. Not Zach oh, Efron, God. but, like, the other guy. I don't know. It's been a while. And, Zach uh, Efron, hold on, I gotta Google this. Zach Efron's brother in High School Musical. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, yeah. Let's see, High School. Just getting a lot of Zach Efron pictures. Right, of course, of course. Man, he had a lot of hair. Oh, uh, Ryan Evan, Lucas Grabiel. Ryan Evan, High School Musical. Now, now look at him. I'm like, yeah, when I'm clean shaven, I actually do look Whoa. like Whoa. Yeah. Wow. He's got, that, um, he's got that Bryson DeChambeau hat on. I don't know if Man. you watch golf at all. No. Uh, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a look. <laughs> Let's see if I can find that one. Hello, it... Bryson. Yeah. No, it's just because of the hat. Uh, oh, I got you. I got you. Uh, um, but... Yeah. The other one was Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone era. Apparently, at some point in time, that's been the most consistent throughout my entire life. I could the people it. say that one. I could see it as if you were younger, for sure. Definitely not Macaulay Culkin now. Thank um, God, because he he looks terrifying. He he definitely belongs at that haunted drive-in carnival. Um, but, but he was married to uh, uh, oh Mila Kunis. So yeah. Yeah, shit. <laughs> I mean, if that's what I had to look like. Exactly, exactly. It's funny you mentioned Home Alone. My daughter was watching Home Alone 2 as I walked out the door this morning. <laughs> Christmas movie. <laughs> exactly. It's that time of the year. Uh, all right, we got a few more here. Are you superstitious at all? No, no. I, I know I jokingly will, like, let my wife pick my clothes before I go to the mix game if I've been running bad. But it, it's just more joke than anything. Let's see here. What's the most entertaining thing you've watched, read, or listened to since the lockdown? 
uh, Galifon Challenge. You should check it out. Uh, let's see. <laughs> yes, all of our listeners should check it out for sure. Uh, where, actually, by the way, you didn't, you didn't mention where can people watch that and uh, find your commentary? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I get that up on Twitch under the handle SurfBum4Life. I know you'll have that in the notes. Uh, sometimes we run on Henry Kilbane's channel, which is just twitch.tv slash Henry underscore Kilbane. Um, and yeah, uh, so that Either way, you'll, you'll tweet about it. So it, hmm. It's out there a yeah. lot. That seems to be all my, my Twitter is used for these days. Um, oh, let's see. Most entertaining thing. Oh, uh, Queen's Gambit. Queen's okay. Gambit. That has been on fire. You you watched the whole thing? Oh, in like two days. How are you as a chess player? So here's the funny thing. I'm not a chess player, but my dad basically did Queen's Gambit back in the day. He was like the high school nerd that would travel, you know, to tournament circuit to tournament circuit. And like he played a bunch of tournaments and like was actually really good at it. And he tried teaching us all. And that one never stuck with any of us. I uh, I definitely enjoyed the series. The only issue I had was with the the second episode. Um, I wish they had cast somebody younger <laughs> <laughs> to play a thirteen year old girl. Um, it's kind of weird but, where she's like playing both a thirteen year old and later like a and then on a twenty five year old and like it's yeah it's definitely weird. Yeah, I'm with you. But you know she's the star. They got to put her on screen somehow, so makes sense. Uh. Do you like telling people you're a professional poker player? Yeah, so I thought about that one a lot um, before this. As I said, like, I, I know your questions, Julio. They're no <laughs> surprise to me. Um, so I like it if people can be intelligent about it. Because if, you know, people, you know, they, they'll give you the, oh, like, my cousin plays poker, this plays poker, I play poker. You just, like, you kind of want to give up, you know? Yeah. It's like, if someone tells me they're an accountant, I'm not like, I do my taxes, buddy. <laughs> Fuck off. That's true. But, like, I, 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 I will never tell, like, an Uber driver or somewhere where, like, let's say I'm going to a tournament, I'll never tell someone I'm a poker player. And that's more of self-preservation. Because, like, well, I'm jumping in Uber. Where'd they pick me up from? If they pick me up from my house, they know where I live. If, mm. like, I'm going to the casino and I have $10,000 in my pocket because, yeah, you know, I'm going to the game. I don't want them to be like, oh, you're a poker player. Tell me more. Oh, where are you going? You're going to the game right now? Oh, like, how much money you got? You know, it's like, I, I'm just cognizant and aware of that stuff. So, uh, you know, there, I, I have no problem. Like, I got pulled into a a conversation for literally an hour and a half at a friend's wedding uh, because you're a poker player. Phil plays poker. Phil, come here. And like pulled <laughs> over the uncle and literally an hour and a half conversation. It's like, okay, cool. Like whatever. Let's, let's talk. If you know, you think it's cool. We'll talk. We'll talk. But uh, I have no problem with that. But I think from a self-preservation angle, sometimes uh, I, I stray away from it. Yeah. Well, it was nice of you to talk to Phil Ivy at that wedding. Uh <laughs> Do you have <laughs> do you have a nemesis or somebody you can't beat? Someone who's always held over you? Uh, I don't know if you've been in those games long enough to develop a rivalry. To some extent, well, okay. So pre COVID, pre COVID, it was Ollie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ollie, uh, he's he's uh, 
Yeah, it, it usually holds over me to some extent within uh, the games pre-COVID. Post-COVID, no. No, I, I, I overcame that one. Nice. Um, favorite gambling movie? <sighs> the one Henry and I are writing? Oh. Oh. Can you give uh-huh. us a sneak peek without uh, losing the rights? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we we started talking about it on uh, stream the other day, and we took it offline, and we just realized that there is no real movie outside of Rounders uh, that kind of holds clout. And we started looking into it of just like, okay, how do we write a movie? How do we market it? And so, uh, you know, Henry's story, he was in England, he moved to Bulgaria, he started playing poker, dropped out of high school, and when he was about 18 years old, he uh, lost a lot of his money in a mechanics game, and he thought, when he figured out they were cheating him, he thought that he could overcome them through skill uh, and lost the rest of his money. Uh, so what we're kind of doing right now is looking into like an opening scene where it's you know that dark hotel room and the guy's passed out and there's clearly a party raging in the other room. The girl walks in and she says, "Hey, you know, Harry, Harry, like what are you doing? Like wake up. Everyone's here for you. You're you're the world champ, you know." And he's just uh, in this fog and you're you're getting the sense that he's the champion. He just won, but he doesn't feel like he belongs. This isn't the world he's used to. And, uh, you know, they're talking and it kind of does this fade away where it's like, you know, let me tell you why I don't belong. Let me tell you where I came from. And it's flashing back into that that poker world, that kind of gritty world of where he came from and how he, mm, he came up from a child story. into being a world champion of poker. I like it. There needs to be something serialized, I think, with poker. It's, it's really hard to tell the whole story in two hours. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you should turn into a miniseries like The Queen's Gambit. <laughs> that's uh, that's where we derive some inspiration from. So we we have some banter back and forth on a pretty regular basis, and we're honest with each other if we think it'll work or if we think you know what the other one put out there is garbage. You listening, Hollywood? Hey, Make I got connections. Got some connections. There are dozens of us who want to see this. <laughs> <laughs> At least twenty-one. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, do you have a bold prediction for poker's future? Yeah. Um, I think we are going to see the death of No Limit Hold'em with the rise up of solvers, um, with the anti-socialness of No Limit Hold'em, where people are just sitting around and just you know staying to themselves and not talking. And I think what you're going to see is it going predominantly towards mixed games. So if you have a mixed game where it's, five to 15 games, wherever they're playing, doing a solver for that is so much harder. How do you do a solver for, you know, Badusi, Badesi, Dramahawk, Raz, Stud, you know, No Limit Hole, Double Board? How do you have a solver for 15 different games all at once? And it forces people to, uh, for some reason, it's a more social game. It forces people to actually just be thinking players. So I think as we see solvers real-time assistance become more and more and more prevalent and people going away from poker uh for no limit hold'em in cash games i think if we grow the community properly then they will grow into the mixed game world uh and we just have to find that bridge to be able to teach people um 
and help them come into our world. Nice. Uh, we end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. You ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. What was your favorite toy growing up? And you can't say poker chips. I was about to say the deck of Uno cards. <laughs> uh, did you have anything non-card uh, related growing up? A favorite uh, yeah. video well, game or? All right. Well, let's. So we we glossed the the childhood a touch. Well, I'll I'll put it this way. Nice. Uh, to let you know where I came from, probably favorite toy coming up was a Molotov cocktail. Uh, what? You mean oh, like? Yeah. I don't. I don't. Was that Fisher Price or Mattel? Or, um... <laughs> <laughs> no, we were uh, literally like I. I grew up with three three of boys in the house, and you know all of mm-hmm. our friends were guys. And there was a uh, a little bit of wood up the hill from us, and there was no houses back there. And there was this uh, giant stretch of woods, and the middle was like this house had burned down, and all this left was a basement. So it's just this giant concrete imprint, probably eight 12 foot walls and so we literally would just go up there and be kids and burn things down and <laughs> build molotov cocktails and throw them against the wall and watch them explode like we were complete hooligans uh by today's <laughs> standards and if we had not run from the fire department and the cops on several occasions we would not be having this conversation right now i'm sorry but the statute of limitations for this is not up oh no and you can expect a, a knock on your door shortly <laughs> It was my brothers, I swear. <laughs> well, they definitely influenced you. I mean, you could argue uh, you you were a victim of circumstance. I was um, sure, Julio. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories. Matt, I, I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. I appreciate you having me, Julio. I do, I do. There you have it. That's the show. Thank you once again to Nathan for coming on. Believe it or not, the guy has a lot more stories to tell. Uh, One of the craziest stories about Nathan is that he was once kidnapped. I know, right? You can actually read all about that harrowing experience in a series of articles that Nathan has written for Card Player Magazine. Uh, Just go to cardplayer.com and search his name and click on his author page. You can also follow him on Twitter, at surfbum4life while he surfs too and of course you can catch nathan commentating on the ongoing galfon challenge by checking out his twitch channel also at surfbum for life follow us on twitter at card player media or at poker underscore stories and as always leave us a nice rating and a review to earn yourself a free digital subscription to card player magazine let us know you did so with an email to poker stories at cardplayer.com and we'll make sure you get hooked up. Thanks for listening.